and welcome to the final episode of this season of the Hotkey Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Taylor, and I'm so thankful that you have chosen to come on this journey with us, and thank you all for listening. We'll first be listening to a very short snippet from A Throne of Swans by Catherine and Elizabeth Corr, the start of a soaring duology, book two of which is coming out in the new year. I then have the pleasure of handing you over to Olivia from That Fiction Life, who will be exploring how we think of heroines in fantasy and ruminating on why we love morally grey characters. And finally, we will be listening to a chapter of The Twisted Tree by Rachel Berg, ahead of the release of its sequel, The Crooked Mask, which is coming in 2021. First up, I'm excited to share a small snippet from the audiobook of A Throne of Swans by the Core Sisters. In a world where the flightless are ruled by those who can fly, following the death of her father, Adarin is at the mercy of her brutal uncle, the king. Driven by revenge, she must venture into the heart of the citadel to seek the truth and to fight for the land she has vowed to protect. Written in rich detail and evocative language, this is the start of an irresistible, soaring duology about courage, broken loyalties and fighting for your place in the world. It is nearly midnight and my father is dying. The physicians continue to scurry around him, grinding up herbs with pestles or chanting over their poultices. But the lavender-scented smoke of the fire can't mask the odour of decaying flesh. Candlelight can't conceal the laboured breath the claw-like fingers clutching convulsively at the bedclothes. He pushes the nearest doctor away, irritable, and beckons me closer. The doctors mutter about infection. Still, I obey. As I balance on the edge of the massive oak-framed bed, my red silk skirts are like a spill of blood in the dimness. I lean in, holding tight to one of his hands. This. He gestures to the weeping sores on his chest and shoulders. A mistake. I stayed too long, and the contagion. His speech is thickened, as if his tongue is swollen. I'm sorry, Adarin. I understand him. The sickness that has ravaged one of our port towns for the last month has led to quarantine and death. My father, to help his people, or in the cause of science, or both, stayed with the afflicted, hoping to discover a cure. He has gambled his life in pursuit of knowledge before, but this time, he lost. And now, now, he wants absolution. I try to tell him that all will be well, that the doctors might still find a way to save him, but the lie catches in my throat. Instead, I stare into his clouded eyes and murmur, I know. It's late, father. You should rest. But he shakes his head and grits his teeth, blinking trying to focus. I want you to stay here. Once I'm gone, stay in the castle. His words are not new. I've been confined within our castle and the peninsula upon which it stands for years. So many years that I long ago stopped asking when I would be allowed to leave. I have learned that it is possible to stand in the open air with the wind on my face and still suffocate. That it is possible to command others and still be a prisoner. Next, I am handing over to one of our hockey ambassadors, the wonderful Olivia from That Fiction Life. She will be discussing our relationship to morally grey characters and women in fantasy, and I'm so excited for you all to hear her thoughts. 
Hello to the Hockey Books podcast listeners. I'm Olivia from That Fiction Life and today I would love to talk to you about Jude from the Folk of the Air series as to me she is one of the most unique protagonists. However, I feel as though the audience have accepted her in different ways. And this starts a very interesting conversation about whether we vilify female characters and why to some extent that is appealing to a reader to have a more unlikable heroine at the helm of a series. If we look at the meaning of the word heroine, I think traditionally it's the main character of a book that the reader is supposed to root for. Now, trends in books generally started with a damsel in distress waiting for her knight in shining armor. But then those characters were criticized for being weak and not independent enough. And so we turned to the strong female character. And those are the characters that take no prisoners. But then they are also challenged that they're not humble enough. And if you are too strong, you will be seen as presumptuous. And so I think you can never truly win. Heroines are arguably expected to be selfless and their motivation being for the good of the world and not themselves. And Jude is someone that is very much motivated by her yearning for power in this very sinister fate world. Even in The Cruel Prince, I think the very first few chapters when you are exposed to Jude's surroundings and what sort of environment she grew up in. So Jude has been surrounded by Faye for most of her life. She herself is human and trying to navigate that environment would affect anyone and especially seeing as Maddock is her father figure. So having said all of that, do morally grey characters make good heroines? Can you even root for someone that you may not agree with? No, I am a strong believer in the fact that characters that are villains or make questionable decisions, you can appreciate the way they are written and you can even begin to understand what drives their decisions and you can love them for that because it it's what makes the reading experience more exciting. But for me, that also has to begin with understanding. If a character has exciting motivations and something that you can maybe not fully relate to, but appreciate the complexity of it. And this series is truly a testament to Holly's writing and her ability to make us root for a very unconventional protagonist. And for Jude, that definitely starts with Maddox's influence on her thinking. Now, Maddox is one of the most hated characters in this series, chapter one of The Cruel Prince. We are exposed to his personality pretty quickly. In The Wicked King, there is a very integral quote from him where he says that we get power by taking it. He's very power hungry, but at the same time, similar to Jude, he does have that very honourable side to him. And I think the fact that he treated Jude and Taryn so well after kidnapping them from the human world, that's what shaped her character. I keep saying this, but that could have easily turned into a Cinderella situation. Maddox did not need to treat them as his own. On the one hand, that is why Jude respects him, even though she does hold that hatred for him for what he did to her parents. The Wicked King is truly where we began to understand how Elfame isn't the lovely fantasy fairyland that we may have thought it to be initially. One of the best quotes for me is 
when Locke says to Jude, your ridiculous family might be surprised that not everything is solved by murder. To which Jude replies, we would be surprised to find that. And that tells you everything you need to know about this family. Yes, Faye in general, as a species, are quite manipulative as they cannot lie. And that has to lead to them kind of tricking you into their truths. But for another Faye to say that Maddox's family particularly is very damaged in this way is very telling. We can even take this back to the first book. Arguably, this is a story about fitting in. However, I don't think we expected Jude to want to be even better and more powerful than the Faye in The Cruel Prince. There are many lines such as, I do not yearn to be their equal. In my heart, I yearn to best them. Now, Jude definitely schemed her way into power. To some extent, you can say it was for noble reasons, to save Oak, but she enjoyed it. She is very consumed with her ability to outsmart the Fae. You're constantly reminded in The Wicked King how thrilling it was for her to carry out her plan. We have the whole situation with Valyrian, and it's all these little instances that make people question about what sort of person she is. So that definitely brings into question whether we have created these very impossible expectations from heroines, that they are supposed to be model citizens, and if they make any kind of mistake, we will criticise them for it. If we look at how historically male leads in a series are treated, for every example that I can think of of our beloved love interests, immediately their characteristics are snarky, probably committed a murder or two, arguably selfish, except of course for their newfound respect for the heroine of the book, yet they have unwavering support from fans. Audiences are definitely more forgiving and adult characters, as seen by characters such as Annalise Keating from the very popular How to Get Away with Murder TV series, or Villanelle from Killing Eve, they are praised for their complexity. They both definitely have villainous traits, and that's something that has to be more explored in young adult literature, as we cannot have these expectations of younger characters. You will see judgmental remarks about Clary Frey from The Mortar Instruments, or Elena Gilbert from The Vampire Diary, for being too soft and not enough of a bloodthirsty warrior to warrant the heroine label. Then you are presented with someone like Jude, who doesn't conform to that traditional heroine behaviour, and she gets labelled as not nice enough and erratic, but there's definitely an appeal to those unlikable heroines. They are, to a large extent, more relatable. And so I think these stories that are motivated by personal goals, those sorts of characters are more understandable to us. And seeing these types of characters definitely provides more of a varied reading experience. And I personally like to work at trying to understand a character. It can even perhaps make you more empathetic. You're seeing a different perspective. I think just because someone is a heroine of a book doesn't mean that they cannot make decisions that may be more attuned to a villain's behaviour. And that's something I find most fascinating about the Folk of the Air series, as we do judge characters without fully understanding their backstory. And Holly Black has done an incredible job of showing us 
the more raw parts of a character and things that you may not expect them to think in any given situation and making decisions that others may see as completely unreasonable. They are something that Jude has to do in order to survive. Holly Black's universe is full of these very important conversations about how characters are perceived and it is very empowering to see. Thank you so much for listening to the Hotkey podcast. You can find Hotkey Books at Hotkey Books YA and at Hotkey Books Teen on Twitter and Instagram and at Hotkey Books on Facebook and YouTube. Our audiobook chapter this month is from the spooky and evocative The Twisted Tree by Rachel Berg. Hotkey Books presents The Twisted Tree, written by Rachel Burge and read by Kate Louise O'Callo. This book is dedicated to Odin. Inspirer of poets, god of wisdom, magic and sacrifice. Martha, 24th of January. It started the day I fell from the tree at Mormor's cabin in Norway. The day I became blind in one eye. I'm going to write it all down here, no matter how crazy it makes me sound. If I have a daughter one day... She deserves to know the truth. The truth? Why couldn't Mum have just told me? The thought is like a knot in my brain, and the more I pick, the tighter it gets. If I had known, I could have done something, and no one would have died. If she had told me, the horror of the past few days might never have happened. The Stain of a Soul my stomach shrinks to a hard ball as we pull into Heathrow. The platform's heaving with people. Holding my rucksack in front of me, I grit my teeth and push my way through the crowd. As people push past me, I get flashes of their lives, their memories and emotions. But it happens so fast I can't make sense of it. My hands are sweaty as I pull my phone from my pocket. I check the time, then wish I hadn't. Last check-in is in 15 minutes. I can't miss this flight. A train pulls into the platform opposite and dozens of passengers spill out. Worried their clothes will touch me, I veer left and head for the escalator. A man passes me, coming up the other way, and for a horrible moment I think it's Dad, but it's just some other grey businessman. Inside the departure hall, people rush around me, dragging reluctant suitcases and even more reluctant children. The noise is like a swarm of bees, all wanting to sting me. It's not just the hubbub of conversation. The air sparks and crackles. It's like their clothes know I'm here, walking among them. A wet-faced toddler wobbles in my direction, hands outstretched, closely followed by a tired-looking woman. I swerve, but not quickly enough to avoid her brushing my arm. The woman had five miscarriages before she had a daughter. She's pregnant again, but lies awake at night, terrified she might lose this baby too. My chest aches with emptiness, her loss so sharp it makes me catch my breath. I walk away, then glance back at her red coat. I've been through Mum's wardrobe enough times in the past few months to know it must be at least 50% cashmere. Wool holds a person's emotions, but 
Kashmir is different. It makes you feel them. Spotting the familiar sign for Scandinavian Airlines, I head towards a check-in desk, then stumble over a suitcase and nearly go flying. Here, watch it, a man snaps. Sorry, I I didn't see. Sorry, I mumble. It might help if you took off your sunglasses. I join the back of the queue, my face burning with embarrassment. Being blind in one eye messes with your depth perception. I can't work out distances. When I focus on something in the foreground, it makes stuff in the distance go blurry. It wasn't a problem at home because I know where everything is, but now, if I can't even make it across the airport without falling over, how am I going to make it to Norway? I hold the silver charm around my neck and tell myself to get it together. I've done the journey with Mum lots of times, and I had no problem travelling around London by myself before the accident. I just need to focus. There are two families ahead of me. If they're quick, maybe I can still make my flight. I rummage through my bag and pull out my printed e-ticket and ferry pass to Shebna. You pronounce it Shebna. Heavy on the sh, which is kind of fitting, as it turns out. We used to spend every summer there. Dad, too, before he left us. But since the accident, Mum refuses to talk about the island. Or Mormo, my grandma. Next customer, please. I step forward and lay my passport and e-ticket on the desk. Where are you travelling to today, miss? Buda. Well, Shebna, actually. But I have to change flights at Oslo and then get the ferry from Buda. And it's Martha Hopkins? My name, that is. My face reddens. I sound like such an idiot. As I put my rucksack on the scales, the woman behind the desk leans over and whispers to her colleague before turning back to me. I stare at my feet, convinced she can tell I'm a runaway just by looking at me. Can you remove your sunglasses, please? My voice is as shaky as my legs. Why? Is there a problem? I need to verify you're the person shown in the passport photo. She glances behind me. Travelling alone? No parent or guardian? No, but I'm 17 and your website said the picture in this passport shows a much younger child. I bite my thumbnail as she slides my passport across the desk, open at the page with my photo, as if I don't already know what it looks like. I glance at the image of the pale-faced girl with the long blonde hair and quickly look away. I hate seeing pictures of me from before. I've always been small for my age, I blurt, then instantly feel stupid. She studies the photo and I clutch my necklace. Most of the jewellery I made after the accident was rubbish, yet this piece came out perfectly. The feel of its cool edges always calms me. I love metal. It tells me nothing. I take a deep breath. Look, I'm actually late, so if you could take off your glasses, miss... Somebody behind me tuts. I snatch off my shades and stare at the woman, or rather, my right eye does. My left eye is looking who knows where. Her eyes widen and flick down to my passport. Thank you. A last call was put out for your flight five minutes ago. You'll have to be quick. Gate 33, up the escalator and to your left. I shove my glasses back on with a trembling hand and turn away. 
but not quick enough to avoid seeing her pity smile. I don't have to touch her clothes to know what she's thinking. Her thoughts are written all over her face. Poor girl, how terrible. She'd be pretty too if it weren't for that. A patronising look, and then she moves on, anxious to lay eyes on someone who doesn't look like a freak. At the top of the escalator, I go through security, where I have to take off my sunglasses and necklace again. Thankfully, people are too busy patting their pockets for loose change that isn't there to notice my face. Once I'm through the metal detector, I snatch my stuff from the plastic tray, replace my shades and hurry to my boarding gate. An air stewardess wearing a jaunty blue hat looks at my pass and shakes her head. My heart lurches. Please, I really need to get this flight. She takes in my trainers. You can run. I grin, and she ushers me onto the connecting air bridge, and we rush to the end. When we get to the plane, I put my necklace on, grateful to feel its cool silence against my skin. Everyone's seated, ready for takeoff. I walk along the aisle, searching for my place. Boarding the plane was always the most exciting part of the journey when I was little. Now the thought of being crammed in a box with strangers makes me feel sick. I look at the people around me. A white fur coat, bristling with outrage. A chunky knit, heavy with sorrow. I can't tell what secrets they hold just by looking at them. But it's hard to stop my imagination sometimes. I find my row and my heart sinks. There's a huge man next to the aisle, and my seat's by the window. Brian, according to the stretched name on his rugby shirt, is wearing earphones and his eyes are closed. <clears throat> Excuse me, I need to get in. No response. A flight attendant is heading this way, folding up tray tables and opening blinds with determination of a trained assassin. I raise my voice, but Brian doesn't hear. The normal thing would be to touch his shoulder, but I don't want his rugby shirt to speak to me. Maybe I should prod his hand. In the end, I pull down his tray table, bashing it against his knee. He jumps awake and grumbles, then stands to let me pass. I smile a thank you, then stash my coat and try to make myself as small as possible. Luckily, my own clothes tell me nothing. I guess it's like the way you can't smell your own scent. My phone bleeps. A message from Mum asking if I've arrived at Dad's. I text back straight away, then turn my phone to flight mode. My parents have barely spoken since the divorce. As long as I reply, there should be no reason for her to call Dad. The plane speeds up, and I feel myself pushed back into the seat as the ground rumbles beneath me. Suddenly, Brian's elbow nudges mine. An onslaught of facts washes over me. They come so fast and hard, I can barely keep up with them. His mother would lock him in a room as a child. Some nights he dreams he's still there, crying for his mummy. My breath catches. Anger. Fear. Rejection. They come at me in waves. I flinch, then rub my head and try to make sense of the jumbled impressions in my brain. His rugby top must be made of polyester. Man-made fibres don't breathe. They throw things at you like a sobbing toddler too distraught to come up for air. The world tips away beneath me and my stomach turns. I close my eyes until I feel the plane level off.
when I look out of the window, there is nothing but pale, empty blue. The light bouncing off the wing of the plane is brilliant white, too pure, almost. I close my eyes, and instantly I'm back in hospital, waking up to blackness. Just remembering the feel of the bandages on my face makes me shudder. Maybe it was a shock, but after I came round I couldn't stop shivering. Mum draped her jacket around my shoulders and then... Even now I can't explain. Something wrenched apart inside of me, as if a gust of wind had banged a door open. I saw myself under the tree, my blonde hair caked with blood, and then I felt a rush of emotion. Fear mixed with guilt and love. Feelings that I knew weren't mine. At first, I was convinced I must have imagined it. Until it happened again. After the operation, they weren't sure how much of my sight had been saved. When the doctor unfurled the bandages from my eyes, his jacket sleeve brushed my cheek. As soon as the material touched me, I saw an image of a bearded man in a reflection on a hearse window his face pale and drawn. The man's father had died and left everything to his new wife. My heart twisted with jealousy. I could almost taste the bitterness he felt. The doctor removed the last of my bandages and I blinked in disbelief. He was the man I'd seen. That night, I lay awake, terrified I was losing my mind. I told myself I must have been hallucinating, even though deep down I knew it was real. The hospital psychiatrist came to see me, concerned how I was coping with my disfigured face, but I didn't tell him anything. If he knew I can tell a person's secrets just by touching their clothes, I wouldn't be on a plane right now. I'd be listening to the ramblings of a straitjacket. Brian takes out a book and cracks open the spine. Anyone who does that is not a good person as far as I'm concerned. It's up there with cruelty to kittens and nose-picking in public. Yet I can't help feeling sorry for him. If I touched his top again, maybe I could offer him some words of comfort. Something tells me his mother couldn't help the way she was. I'm sure lots of mental illnesses went undetected in previous generations. Nowadays she'd be given medication. Like Mum. Thinking about Mum makes my head pound. I turn my shoulder to Brian and snap the blind shut. His life is none of my business. And besides, what can I say that will make a difference? The past will always haunt him. Pain like that stays with you. It seeps out of your pores and into the fibres of your clothes and nothing can remove the stain of a soul.